All right, so K through fifth up here, three-year-olds through five-year-olds in the back. Where's my son Cooper at? Come here, Coop. I got a question for you. Who is my favorite person on the planet? Mom. Mom. Okay. I want to make sure you guys, I want you to store that in the back of your head. We're going to come back to that here after a little bit. Um, but yes. Okay. Other thing I was made aware of, which I mean, I already knew, but it's, it's good to be made aware of this. There are a lot of new faces here today. There have been for the last few weeks. Uh, I am not the person that would normally be up here. You'd be able to see the guy that's up here a lot easier than me. He's a few inches taller than me. Uh, he's a little bit older than me. He's a much better speaker than me. And, uh, and I love that guy to death. But Ronnie is celebrating 39 years of marriage with his wife, Linda, this weekend, which is incredible. Yeah, you, you should honestly clap for that. It's huge. Um, and so he's not with us. I, I, I don't think that he's online this morning either because I think he's attending a service with his uh, cousin, his wife and his cousin. And so he's excited about that. But normally he'd be up here, not me. Uh, and so I just want to make sure I make that clear. He'll be back next week, um, and that'll be great. But another thing, too, in the back, we have a welcome center. If you're new here, uh, man, we'd love to, to give you a little bit of a gift. We got something for you back there. Also, inside your bulletin, if you grabbed one, there's a little bit of a, there's a flap in there that has some information on it. That's just a way for us to kind of keep, keep track of who's coming. If we need to contact you about something, that'd be great. If you're not comfortable with that, that's fine. But, man, we'd love it if you do that. And then take that, fold it up, and put it in. There's two boxes in the back that we use for offering. Just put it in there or leave it uh, on your pew and we'll gather those to finish. So um, if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 2. That is where we will be today. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I say this every time I get up here, and I'm sure you're tired of saying it. Uh, every sermon I get up here that Ronnie gives me, I feel like he plays games with me. Uh, I was reluctant to give this message. Uh, the last time, uh, really every time Ronnie tells me to ask me to preach, he usually gives me some either long passage or obscure passage, or he knows it's like a topic that I, would, might make me uncomfortable. I remember one of my first sermons I preached here was out of uh, Romans chapter 8, 9, and 10. Yeah, I said that correctly. Three chapters of the Bible, of one of the most dense, difficult books, he asked me to preach one sermon on. So yes, he did that to me. Uh, this time, when he told us that he's getting ready to be on his uh, anniversary trip, he said, hey, uh, I'm going to be gone. Can someone preach? He's definitely not asking Eric to preach. No offense to you, Eric. You speak fine, but he's asking me to preach. So uh, you just preached too. So there's that. But after I agreed, said, yeah, I'll preach for you, whatever, um, he said, uh, I was really thinking that uh, you could preach out of Genesis chapter 2 and maybe focus on the two becoming one flesh uh, imagery that's in there. Now, if you don't know why that's, uh, why I'm reluctant to speak about that, <laughs> I'll tell you, it's a, it, the, 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 really that imagery is often associated with sex between a husband and a wife. And so when Ronnie said this, that's where my head honestly went to. Like, really, you're going to ask me to preach about sex? Uh, you've been married for 39 years. You should get up and give that sermon. So, um, but before you go get your children, uh, in hopes that I will explain sex to them, uh, we're not going to be talking about sex the whole time today. Uh, as I kind of waded into the the text of Genesis chapter 2, I realized very quickly that there is obviously a much bigger, much more important picture happening that sex plays a part in, but is definitely not the primary uh, focus of this passage. So we're going to be in Genesis chapter 2 towards the end of it. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and read it real quick. We're going to pray over the text, and then we will uh, get into it. So 
Genesis chapter 2. Also, there is an ESV Bible in the back of your pew there. If you brought a physical Bible and you brought like an NIV, but you want to read the text that I'll be using and the text that we'll be using from here on out, that ESV Bible is there. If you don't have a Bible, take that. If you have it on your phone, definitely switch to it because the wording will be a little bit different. So, but he says this starting in verse 18 of chapter 2. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see, uh, see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave the names to all livestock and birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed its place, up its place with flesh. And the rib that, that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then he said, this is, then he said, Adam said, this is, this is at last bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. I want to let you guys know we're going to be wading into some deep waters today. I'm, I'm just going to be right up front with you. And so my prayer is going to be that as we wade into the deep waters about how God designed marriage, what, how he designed it to operate, what he designed it for, which I think is probably the most important thing of this whole picture, it's going to be tough at times. But I promise you, the end is going to be worth it. And so please wade into those waters with me and be ready to swim. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to love and serve you. Uh, Lord, I just ask that as we approach your word, we would understand how intense and how life-giving it can be. Lord, that your word says that it can separate joint and marrow. Lord, that as we read it, Lord, I ask that your spirit would convict us, that it would guide us, that it would lead us into a much deeper sense of what it means to follow you, a much deeper sense of what joy in this life looks like and what the joy of marriage actually is. So, it's in your son's name I pray, amen. All right, the focus of this message will obviously be marriage. I've already kind of said that. Specifically, God's design for marriage. And to be honest, as I uncovered this, I didn't necessarily feel better about preaching this sermon. The first reason why I didn't necessarily feel comfortable with it is because I'm under the age of 40 giving a marriage to a group of people, some of which have condiments in the back of their fridge older than I am. (laughs) The good news is it's probably A1 steak sauce and it doesn't belong on steak anyway, so it should just stay there, right? (laughs) But seriously, the good news is that this message is deeply rooted in God's word and not my experience. That is something that we have to understand about the words that are going to be communicated today, especially when I read from his word, and when I reference his word, is that it's his word that cuts to the heart, not mine. And so my hope is that his word speaks today. The second reason why I was reluctant to preach this message is the concept of singleness. Not just the concept, but the reality of it. Paul, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 8, I mean, says to the unmarried and to the widows, I say it is good for them to remain single as I am. I have some theories on why Paul says this in relation to the passage that we're in today, but honestly, to get into that would be, would be wading into waters that aren't necessarily completely factual, and I don't want to like speak where the Bible does it in that sense. So 
If you want to talk about that, we can. But at the end of the day, the Bible says that being single is good, and there are reasons that it gives for that. But it is tough to preach a sermon on marriage, knowing that there are people that uh, this might not necessarily relate to. But the good news is God's word can teach us, even in the midst of situations that uh, aren't necessarily uh, the same as what other people are in. And so I'm hoping that, our, that his word speaks to them today as well. The third reason is kind of one that, again, is tough to get into, but it is kind of the state of marriage in and out of the church today. It is no secret that marriage has been under attack for some time. Marriage statistics for the last 20 years at least have not necessarily changed. Barna Group released an article in 2017, and this is what they found. Christians are more likely to be married than the rest of the world. They have actual numbers to this, but I, I didn't want to bore you with all of those, but they're more likely to be married than those outside of the church. This, is, this should be a praise. We should be praising God for this. We should be excited about this. This is good. This is how God designed uh, man and woman to operate in certain situations. But then they go on to say this, but we're practicing Christians and evangelicals share in their likeness with the rest of the country. Where they share in their likeness, as opposed to being married more, where they share in their likeness with them is having experienced divorce. In fact, both groups have equal divorce rates, both historically and currently, of the general adult population. Both groups experience 25% uh, of marriages that end in divorce, compared to the very same number that is outside the church. So although these strong religious convictions are more likely, are more likely to cause them to be married, it doesn't necessarily change the outcome. Now, I want to make sure I say this. Divorce is not like the end-all, be-all of sins. It is part of, the, of a sinful world that we live in today. But we have to see it as that, that divorce is part of a sinful world that we live in. And so when we read statistics like this, although they might bring up some emotions within us that aren't necessarily good, it should also cause us to question why. Why does it look like this? Why is it like this? And it might lead us into some truth that, again, will be hard to deal with, but at the end of the day, is truth that we have to wade into. Genesis 2 will not necessarily give us the reasons why these things happen, but I think it definitely will give us some solutions as well as some framework in how to build biblical, godly marriages and relationships out of. And so the first point that I want to make that honestly is so easy to miss is that marriage without God is not marriage. Marriage without God, if you try to remove God from the concept of marriage, it is not marriage anymore. I entitled this sermon, A Beautiful Design, which I stole from another minister who preached a series that had a lot more to do with gender roles and kind of how they play out in the world and interact in marriage. But I love the title so much because I think that it captures what is explicit in the text and throughout the Bible. God designed marriage and uses marriages. Because he designed it, it ceases to be what it is without him. Up until this point in our text, in, in, the, in the Bible, which isn't very long, but up until this point, everything that God saw was good. But all of a sudden, the words were penned that God saw something that was not good. God saw that it was not good, and he sought to rectify that problem. And how did he do that? He made a helper and united her to the man. I read this passage a lot, and it's amazing and, and sad, honestly, how easy it is to miss, miss this simple truth that marriage is God's. The world has hijacked this term to put to put on tax documents, but marriage is not just a piece of paper you sign when, you, when you're witnesses, with your witnesses at your wedding. It is to fulfill a promise. It is partaking in a design spoken to existence by God himself. 
Marriage is one man leaving his father and mother and uniting to his wife and becoming one flesh for God's glory and his alone. This can be ignored, but it doesn't cease to be true. The world around us can accept things like same-sex marriage. It can, dis- it can accept things like divorce, divorce as normal or even dysfunction as the norm, but that is not God's design. God's design was for marriages to be beautiful. Just like we don't get to choose where the sun is in the solar system, we don't get to choose God's relationship to marriage. We don't get to choose God's relationship to your marriage. That means that if you are married, God's relationship to your marriage is unquestionable. The question is not if that relationship is there. The question is, are you actively displaying that relationship in the way that you conduct your marriage? I'm going to repeat that. The question is, are you actively displaying the relationship, that relationship between you and God, your spouse and God, in the way that you conduct your marriage? And so what does that look like? I'm glad you asked, because we're going to get into that. Point two, marriage with God is equal. Now, I want to make sure I clarify this statement, equal, or this word equal. Most often when we hear this word equal today, we think of the word same. Unfortunately, that is not, that is not, unfortunately, this word is often misunderstood. Man and woman are, in fact, equal in value and dignity and self-worth, but they are definitely not the same. Everything from the way we look to the way we think is different. As you're going to see in this text, as you're going to see, the the text is going to acknowledge our distinctness, but it's also going to acknowledge our dignity as well. If God wanted us to be the same, then he would have made another Adam. But the problem is he didn't, because that would have caused a whole lot of other problems. So I don't need to get into those, but you, you should understand where I'm going with that. The text the acknowledges that we are equal but distinct. It says this in verse 18, and we're going to read through a little bit, and we're going to unpack some of this. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man, that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We are already acknowledged that God, God, God's word acknowledged for the first time that something was not good. But it also acknowledges, that it uses a word, helper. What did Adam need help with? Genesis 1.26 says this, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let him have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and the livestock, and over all the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on it. Genesis 2.15 says, The Lord God put him in the garden of Eden. Who? Adam. Put Adam in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. Adam was, Adam was given the primary task of dominion and work, but he couldn't feel, fulfill this task effectively on his own. Although he hasn't made Eve yet, this is why he goes on to make Eve, to help Adam with the task of dominion and work on the, with both, sorry, to work on the earth. Both are equally valuable to the task, but distinct in responsibility and application. Verse 19, now out of the ground, the Lord had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave, him, gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to the beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. This is that dominion playing out over the earth where Adam is naming these animals and these creatures, trying to find a helper for himself, and it didn't play out. The truth is, as much as I love my dog, my dog and I are not equals, right? Unless we're talking D-A-W-G, right, Caleb? So um, then we're equal. But 
When we're talking about animals and humans, we're not on, the, on a level playing field. That's what, it, that's what this is communicating. The whole Bible communicates this. Does that mean that we abuse them? No. Does that mean we neglect them? No. We are sought to take care of them, to work, to, to honor the things that God has given us dominion over. And so we love our, we love our animals. We love all of the things around us. But this is dominion playing out. Verse 21, so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, he took out one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I love some of the imagery that God uses, that uses here and that is playing out. What's interesting about the Bible is that we can take we can grab words that are used here, look for them in other locations in the Bible, and it gives us a better picture of what's actually happening here. For example, the word rib is often, most often, in fact, this is the only time this Hebrew word is translated rib. In every other place in the Bible, it's translated side. The side, right? In Exodus 25 and 37, the word describes the side of the Ark of the Covenant. In Exodus 26, it is used to describe the side of a building. And in Ezekiel, it's used to describe the room off of the side, which is referred to as a side chamber. Why is this significant? Why is this beautiful? What does this image of the side of the rib tell us? The author of the word biblical commentary had this to say, just as the rib is found at the side of the man and is attached to him, even so the good wife, the rib of her husband, stands at the side to be his helper and counterpart, and her soul is bound up with his. Another commentator named Matthew Henry said this, she was not made from his head to top him, she was not made from his feet to be trampled on by him, but she was made from his side to be equal with him, to be put under his arm to be protected by him, and to be put close to his heart to be loved by him. We are separate, but we are equal. There's a lot happening in the end of verse 22 and 23, and at the end of verse 22, you have this beautiful, beautiful imagery of God the Father taking this daughter that he just created and bringing her to Adam to give to him. You want to know where this idea of the husband giving away his wife came from? Right here. How, yeah, how beautiful is that? Sorry, you know what I'm saying, though, the father. How beautiful is that, though? How beautiful is that, right? This is why the, the, this imagery is so beautiful, because, man, God the father took his daughter and brought him to Adam. Ah! You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm saying. But it's beautiful, and I'll be honest with you, I completely missed that. It wasn't until I listened to a sermon by John Piper, which, by the way, you should go listen to this sermon. It'll blow your mind. I'm probably going to cry today. It's because of some of the things John Piper started. I was listening to his sermon crying because it's just so good. But he, he, the sermon is called, it's from like 2005 or seven or something like that. But the sermon is called, Staying Married Isn't About Staying in Love. And man, it will blow your mind what he communicates in there. But he brought up this point that God the God. The father gave away his daughter to Adam, and how beautiful that is, right? We have this image of a father giving away his bride to the groom, and what does Adam do as soon as he sees her walking down the aisle? He breaks out into song, into poetry. That's what's happening there. When you read this, this in the Hebrew, he breaks out into song and poetry. When he sees her, he says, Matt Chandler, Matt Chandler translates it as mine. She's mine. Stay away, Okay? She is mine. I, I want that, right? When she says that, that's what, she, that's, what, that's what he does. He breaks out into song. 
The first examples of man's words in the scriptures are him breaking out into song over his wife. That's beautiful. Now the phrase bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh also has a couple meanings. We will get into one of those later, but the one we're going to get into now complements his strengths and weaknesses. Bone is an image of strength and flesh is an image of weakness. The word bone is actually derived from another word, which actually literally translates to make strong or to be strong. So Adam is saying, I don't know who said it, but I know what movie it's from, she completes me, right? Jerry Maguire or something like that, right? Am I wrong? I don't know. But that's what, that's what he's saying when he sees her. She is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Where I am weak, she is strong. Where she is weak, I am strong. And again, this is this beautiful imagery of what God has created and instituted in the equalness of marriage. So we've spent a bunch of time unpacking in the scriptures what equalness in marriage looks like, right? But how does this equalness play out in our world today? How does it play out in our marriages today? I think the biggest piece of advice that I could come up with, and again, this is me speaking, this isn't the word speaking, but is to be on the same page. Be on the same page in how you handle this thing called life. This is not an individual sport. You work together. A problem that I often see playing out in the, in the lives of marriages is two individuals living in the same house trying to complete God, what God has given us. Husbands, God gave your wives to complement your weaknesses and to tap into your strengths. You need her just like sometimes you need directions. Wives, I don't care how much you vibe with Destiny's Child and being an independent woman, but that is not a model for a healthy marriage. It's not a model for a healthy marriage. The point of marriage is to be dependent upon one another to complete the, the task that God has laid before us. Engage couples. Let's point it over there because I know there's one right there. Practice this by making your decisions about your wedding and your future together, right? Together. It's a simple way you can start to put this into practice. If you're young and maybe don't have kids yet and you're married, of course, that's implied, try to be on the same page about how you spend your money or even your time. Practice this with how you plan to discipline your children or talk to them to think about things like the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus. Don't worry, I'm not going to get into all that. If you don't know that, I'm sorry for you, but it's okay. Uh, but ultimately, Annie and I remember having, we spent years talking about this conversation, about what does it mean, how, why, how are we going to communicate about just these two simple things, Easter Money and Santa Claus. This is a way that you can build equalness with your spouse, how you can begin to be on the same page about what it looks like to complete this task that God has laid before you. Understand that you will not always be perfect at this, but you should be proactive. Just because you're not perfect does not mean you should be proactive. I remember a guy talking about completing tasks says, done is better than perfect. A lot of times we look for perfection. That is not a real world expectation for how to do anything. <laughs> you will not be perfect at anything. It's not how it works. And where you fall short, grace will prevail as it always does. All right, so let's pack, unpack the second meaning of bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, and this will get us into our second point. Marriage without God is not marriage. marriage. Marriage with God is, first of all, equal, but marriage with God is also loyal. Then the man said, this is at last bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
The term bone and flesh in the Bible also carry, carry with them the weight of reciprocal loyalty. This plays itself out both in the familial sense and the non-familial sense in the Bible. Genesis 27, 37, when Joseph's brothers were going to kill him, Judah stepped in and said, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let our hand be upon, let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. They still did a bad thing, right? But the point that he's making to try to get their brothers not to kill him is, listen, this guy is our own flesh and blood. His blood can't be on our hands. And so we at least owe him this. In 2 Samuel 5, 1, it says, then, to all the tribes of, then all of the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and your flesh. These are not, this isn't family in the same way that the first story was, but there's still this reciprocal loyalty taking place where both people display this loyalty to one another. Verse 23 is a pledge of loyalty to her. In modern terms, Adam is saying, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health, until death do us part. I will honor you with all the days of my life. When we say that pledge, we might as well be saying, bone of our bone, flesh of my flesh. We're making a pledge to her. And that matters. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. The word leave could also be translated forsake. It's a term that carries with it a ton of weight because it was often referred in the Bible to Israel's rejection of God. This word is all over the Old Testament. In Jeremiah 1.16 it says, And I will declare my judgments against them for all, their, for all their evil in forsaking me. There's that word. They have made offerings to other gods and worshipped the works of their own hands. He is using a word with a ton of weight because what they are leaving in that day and age would have been outside the norm and it would have felt like betrayal to those that they were leaving. To Eastern cultures which were predominant in that day and still exist today, uh, sorry, hold on a second. The predominant thought was taking care of your parents was the highest human obligation next to honoring God. Meaning that if you are a man or a woman, your first priority besides honoring God was to take care of your family. And so when God said, you're going to leave your father and mother and your loyalty is going to shift from your parents to your wife, he was saying something incredibly profound and earth shattering at, at that day. The last word I want to point out is the word in the, the is, is, the last word I want to point out in this part is the phrase, hold fast. This phrase can often be translated cling or cleave, but simply put, it means to stick. Stick to your wife, stick to your husband, no matter what. In other places in scripture, it refers to Israel's sticking to or holding fast to God. Deuteronomy 10.20, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve him, and you shall hold fast to him. By his name you shall swear. I guarantee you this was a verse that they were repeating when they were in captivity for years and years and years and years. God, I'm not leaving you. I'm not leaving you. Don't leave me. I'm not going to leave you. Right? Hold fast. Stick to. This has striking similarities. This call to loyalty has striking similarities to the call to discipleship in Luke 14, which hopefully will be some foreshadowing 
to what we're going to get into later. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The call Jesus expects of you when you come to him is the same call he expects of you when you marry your spouse. Total and complete loyalty. When God doesn't, want, doesn't answer the way that you want to, do you leave? Well, you shouldn't. When the storms of life rage and the things at home are impacted, do you get yourself out? No. You batten down the hatches together. You get in the fight and in the trenches together. You climb the mountain and you walk through the valleys together. I brought Cooper up here to kind of illustrate how I think this can play out and how this should play out. What's the, what's the question I asked Cooper? Who's my favorite person? They, I say this to them every once in a while. It's not like I just like walk around like, eh, my favorite person is my, my wife, you know? But my kids know who my favorite person is. It is unquestionable in my house who I love the most. Do I love my kids? Absolutely. But if it's a choice between my kids and my wife, as long as I'm not talking about like a death situation, because I guarantee you Annie would tell me to take them, but like if we're talking about like, should we watch TV or not? I'm picking my wife's side on, on it every time. That is not a question. I think this is an easy way that you can illustrate this to your kids and how you can express this loyalty to your spouse. I'm picking her side. I'm picking her side every time. And even if she's being irrational about something, I'm still gonna pick her side, but we're gonna talk about it later. You know what I mean? <laughs> Babe, calm down. I just walked in the door. She knows. We talk about this all the time. Now, I should clarify, this isn't something that is like I said every day, but when you've been together for 20 years and married for 15 of those, or married for 39 of those, Ronnie, thank you, uh, these things happen. They're going to happen. Do you hope that this happens all the time? Did you have to express this all the time? No. But to me, it's a simple application to a profound thought that marriage with God is loyal. And the same loyalty he expects to him, he expects you to have to your spouse. That should carry some weight with it. That should be heavy. When I'm talking about deep waters, if that doesn't drag you there, you ain't human, okay? All right, now the fun one. I know some of you guys are excited about this one. The last point, marriage with God is equal. Marriage with God is loyal. Finally, marriage with God is intimate. Therefore, a man and man shall leave his father and mother. She shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I could have explained this a lot of different ways. I found an article that I think summed it up perfectly, so I'm going to read some of it, and then I'm going to get into some more. So, Husbands and wives become one flesh in sexual, sexual intimacy in the confines of a covenant relationship. Two becoming one flesh, the two becoming one is a sexual, is the, is the sexual aspect of marriage, meaning means caring for and fulfilling one another's physical needs with respect and mutual consent, not exploiting one another and delighting in one another. God's design for physical intimacy in marriage is portrayed with beauty and in dignity in the Song of Solomon. 
Of course, oneness in marriage reaches far beyond the physical level. The original Hebrew word for translated flesh refers to much more than a person's physical or sexual composition. It relates to the whole human existence. The biblical view of one flesh communicates a unity that covers every facet of a couple's joint lives as husband and wife. In marriage, two whole lives unite together as one, emotionally, intellectually, financially, spiritually, and in every possible way you can think of. The two shall become one in purpose. They are so close that they function like one person, balancing each other's strengths and weaknesses so that together they can fulfill their God-given calling. I was actually reading out of the Bible recap. Who's reading the Bible recap this year? You should, you should remember this. This is from this morning, right? When they're talking about Levitical law, if a, if a, which this is weird, don't get me wrong, but if a, a son slept with his father's wife, the punishment is death. Why? Because even though he slept with his father's wife, he has uncovered his father's nakedness. When, they, when the Bible talks about two becoming one flesh, you become one person, so much so that in Levitical law, you could be punished by death for this type of sin. Later on, it says a very similar thing, talking about an uncle's wife, that if you sleep with your uncle's wife, which is also weird, right, you, you, you both incur the same punishment, child, childlessness, and so this is a serious thing that goes far beyond. This is not just a metaphor. This is like, this is an image of how God sees you once you enter this relationship. The truth has been utterly destroyed throughout human history and the modern era is no different. Marriages and lives have been sacrificed on the altar of sex for far too long. Sex has been, become an idol to be worshipped and chased after. I do have to say this though. Sex is an integral part of the, mar the marriage relationship according to God's design. I recently read a study that said over a quarter of marriages are quote-unquote sexless. If this is the situation you find yourself in, I beg you to ask the question, why? If sex is about connection and intimacy and the intertwining of souls to literally help you become one flesh with one person, why is it not present? Men, you might be wading into some deep waters by asking this question. Because there might be some things that you're holding on to in the way that you're looking at sex that is directly causing this. The ways that you might not be sacrificing or taking care of your wife that will be directly causing this. Wives, it might be the same thing with you. This question should wade you into deep waters if this is the situation you find yourself in. And even if you find yourself in a healthy relationship that maybe it is present, I think you should still ask this question. Why am I doing this? What's the purpose of it? Is this just something to, to, to serve myself or is this something to have gain intimacy with my wife and honor God? Husbands, life, oh, sorry. Husbands, if sex is always about meeting your needs, you are missing out. Sex is not just a carnal, self-serving ritual. It is much more than that. The two becoming one flesh for woman starts in seeking and serving her every, every day. The mingling of souls starts in conversation and in service, it starts in doing the dishes and asking how her day went. This is something I often fail at, right? Now, I know that sounds like a lot of work. And guys, men and women are built differently. I'm not gonna act like it's not a lot of work. It definitely is. But to kind of lighten this up a little bit, I wanna read something that a comedian said about this. To connect with your wife, you must wine her and dine her and caress her. 
hold her and kiss her and buy her things, tell her she is beautiful, buy her more things, right? The list goes on and on. Wives, connecting with your husbands is pretty simple. Show up naked and bring food. (laughs) Glad Jason laughed back there. Listen, it's a joke, but it's incredibly, I mean, I'm being incredibly honest with you. I actually messaged Ryan this morning. I said, hey, can I share this? Is this too much? He didn't, I didn't give him any context, so he was really weirded out by the message at first. <laughs> so then I, 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 I talked to him, and he was like, oh, that'd be funny. You should definitely share that. And if anyone doesn't like it, I'll apologize for you next week. So, uh. Relationships are hard, right? But seriously, though, we, we have to remember what Adam's response was to when she saw Eve. He broke out into poetry. He said, she is mine and I can't live without her. I have to have her. It's a fact that life, that li- it's a fact of life that men, now we're kind of shifting over here, men lead better and love better when those needs are met. It's just part of the reality. It's tough, but it's part of the reality. But this goes back to that question, why is it not present or why, why am I even doing this to begin with? We cannot buy into the lie that intimacy is about purely meeting needs, though. If we do, we lose sight of how it connects us physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Men and women, if you want a little, little mind shift that will help you put this into practice, think about ways intimacy and sex are ways to meet your spouse's needs. How am I meeting her needs, not how am I meeting my own? Now, I want to talk about something that I think is probably one of the biggest barriers to intimacy in our world today. this phone, okay? Did you know that when you use your phone, it produces dopamine? When you get a, a like on an Instagram, you know, post or you see something on Facebook that you're excited about or you click buy on that shopping, you know, button, produces dopamine. You know when else your body produces dopamine? When you have sex. Or when you have it, or when you're struggling with an addiction. Produces the same chemical. And so when you pull out your phone and you spend lots of time on it, you're becoming addicted to something that is fake, that isn't real. Right? A a study at the University of Harvard said dopamine is a chemical, chemical produced by our brains that plays a starring role in motivating behavior. It it gets released when we take a bite of delicious food, when we have sex, or even when we exercise. And importantly, when we have successful social interactions. It rewards us for beneficial behaviors and motivates us to repeat them. Although this is not intense as a hit of cocaine, although it's in the same realm of it, positive social stimuli will similarly result in a release of dopamine reinforcing whatever behavior that produced it. Every notification, whether it's a text message, a like on Instagram, or a Facebook notification, has potential to be positive social stimuli and a dopamine influx. Smartphones and social media apps aren't going anywhere anytime soon, so it is up to us as the users to decide how much of our time we are going to dedicate to them. Unless the advertisement-based profit model changes, companies like Facebook will continue to do everything they can to keep your eyes glued to the screen as often as possible. By using algorithms to leverage our dopamine-driven reward circuitry, they stack the cards and our brains against us. See, the devil is sneaky. He's used modern tech and money 
as Harvard put it, to stack the cards in our brain against us. Your mind produces the same chemicals it produces doing God-designed things it does with addiction. I don't know about you, but addiction doesn't seem to always be a good factor for building relationships. We enter into this when we, when we allow screens to be barriers of intimacy in the world with the world around us. If, you are someone that, if you're not someone that struggles with this, man, praise God. But I have a feeling that you're probably one of the minorities. If you're not sure, if, if you're married and you're not sure if you struggle with this, or if you're a kid and you're not sure if you struggle with this, ask your parents or ask your spouse. Honestly. And hopefully they'll say, yeah, you probably spend too much time on your phone. Let's fix that. Parents, I'm going to say this, because I feel like I have to. The same stuff applies to all screens, especially when it comes to the developing mind. If this can do this to an adult's brain, imagine what it can do to a developing brain with a kid. The screen cannot be the easy way out always. It can be sometimes. We do it. But it can't be the first place we go. Nothing has made me more aware of this than aware of the nature of sin than turning off a show that my two, seven, or ten-year-old is watching. Sometimes I think they're demon-possessed. One of the best things I think you can do for your relationship, whether it's marriage or others, is to limit and be aware of your screen time. If you have to be like me and you have to set a screen time, like I spend this much time on these apps, do that. My wife has the code to that. I can't turn that off. And you know what? It's been a lot more liberating to live life not tied to my screen all the time. But if you don't have a phone that maybe has that capabilities, it should show you how much screen time you have been using. Or you should at least be able to figure out how to be aware of it. All right, let's wrap this up. I got one last point to make, and it's part of my conclusion, and then we'll get right into communion. When it comes to looking at any situation or topic, there are two different ways to look at it. The first one is at the ground level. You're face-to-face with it. Some call it getting lost in the trees. For the last however many minutes, probably too many, we have been in the trees dissecting the what of marriage. The other way to look at it is the bird's eye view, to back up and look at the whole picture. This is something much bigger. There is something much bigger going on than marriage in these verses and in the whole of the Bible. So the last thing that I want to point out is this. Marriage is about more than marriage. Verse 25, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Nakedness in the Bible, which we already kind of referenced earlier, almost always is associated with humiliation. I could read tons of scriptures about this, but we definitely don't have time for that. You have to look no further than the next chapter to see this. When Eve sinned, what is the first thing that they did? When Adam and Eve sinned, I should say that. They realized their nakedness and they did what? They covered it up. Because, it, because all of a sudden they felt this guilt and shame about that nakedness. They were living freely here and all of a sudden they're not. God is making the point that, that between Adam and Eve, there was no wedge let me say that differently. They were both perfect, and there was no need for a veil between the two. To be more clear about this, Ephesians 5, 531-32 says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery, listen to this, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. John Piper said it this way, the highest meaning of marriage is to put on display the covenant relationship between Christ and his church to the world. I'm gonna read that again. 
The highest meaning of marriage is to put on display the covenant relationship between Christ and his church to the world. Your marriage is not just about you two. It is a picture, it is an image, it is a direct display of God's grace playing out in the world through Jesus. Why do we pursue equality? Why do we pursue loyalty? Why do we pursue intimacy in marriage? Because when we do, God's commitment to his people is ultimately displayed. Why do we push through even when we don't feel like it? Because when we do, we get to, go, we get to show Jesus to the world. In Luke 22, Jesus makes it clear that he does not want to endure the cross. You ever want to give up? I know I have before. But this is what he says. Father, if you are willing to remove this cup from me, do it. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus' commitment to God's plan and our redemption made him sweat blood just praying about it. God's covenant relationship with his people, Jesus' commitment to die on the cross for you and for me plays out when we do that for our wives and our husbands every day. If that does not give you purpose in marriage, I do not have an answer for you as to what will. That is a profound truth. That being honest with you, I've spent a lot of my life not understanding. You have an opportunity to share the gospel, not just with the way that you speak, but with the way that you live, with the way that you show your kids what it means to love your spouse even when it hurts. Now, I have to clarify this because sin has caused me to have to clarify something like this. Does this mean that you need to stick to yourself in an abusive relationship? Absolutely not. Does that mean that you might need to work through some things to try to get there? Okay, maybe. But at the end of the day, Jesus does allow provision for divorce to take place, but it is some very specific circumstances and it should be a last resort. Romans 5.8 says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one, who is, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even die. But God show his loves for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I hope you can see that in your marriage, you have the opportunity to love like Jesus loved and show the world what that love really looks like. I asked a question at the beginning. I think you gotta, I think I, wa I wanna finish with this and then we'll get right into communion because I think there's no better way to celebrate it. Basically, I said, we can't choose where God's relationship is to our marriage. But we can ask the question, how does our marriage actively display that relationship to the world? I want you to think about that as we kind of move forward. The highest meaning of marriage is to put, to put on display the covenant relationship between Christ and his church to the world. So if you have your communion cups, if you're new here, those are kind of in the back. I should have said that earlier. We're going to come to a time of communion and we're going to we're gonna remember that sacrifice that Jesus gave to us.
So he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the blood. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant poured out for many. Do this in remembrance of me. Dear Heavenly Father, I come to you today. I thank you so much for the opportunity to share your word today, to talk about the construct of marriage and how you designed it and how beautiful it can be. Lord, I ask that as we waded into those deep waters, Lord, that, man, we came face to face with maybe some of our own inadequacies. Uh, Lord, but at the same time, we know that we can rest those inadequacies upon your grace and what you've done for us on the cross. And so, Lord, I ask that you would uh, help us to find truth and life in the truth of your gospel. And Lord, that we'd seek to display that to the world through our marriages. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.